Uh, this week we finish our Unbelief Sermon Series. Uh, we have been preaching through this for seven weeks now. We have been trying to tackle some of the larger things in uh, faith and doubt and skepticism and belief. And, and what are these, these kind of hurdles we run into in our culture that create uh, not only issues for non-believers to come into the faith, but issues for believers to go, I really like everything about this Jesus, except this part is hard for me. And so what we've been trying to do is, A, acknowledge that that stuff exists, and then B, give us ways to talk about it together. How do we articulate it together in a way that is helpful not only in our own homes, but with those who are outside of belief? How do we love them well as we uh, hold truth out? And so last week, if you weren't here, we tackled the uh, super comfortable subject of sex and gender, and we loved it so much that we're doing it again this week. So last week was part one. They kind of go together, two sides of the same page. If you haven't heard last week's sermon, uh, don't leave, but go ahead and listen to it uh, later. And so that will kind of give you the greater context as to where we are today, because last week we took this 30,000-foot view on sex and gender. This week, we zoom in and we go, how do we practically live out love? Like, how, how do we actually love um, a culture that is changing around us? How do we first, what we'll do today is understand that culture, and then the second thing we're going to do is how do we love them rooted in truth? And so one of the, the, the problems we have as a modern Christian culture is we're either uh, typically about truth, but we forget the love part, or we're all about love, and we kind of get rid of the truth part, and both of those are ditches we don't want to be in. And so we're going to try to uh, navigate that well today. Uh, last week we said if we believe that God is the designer, then we have to allow God to be the definer. That's kind of, uh, if we encapsulated all of last week into one line, it would be if God is the designer, then God gets to be the definer of all things sex and gender. This week, as we move into this more practical area, I'm going to use this Sam Albury quote, and I'm going to use it a couple times. Uh, he says, people don't care what is true if they don't believe that it's good. As we engage the culture around us, people don't care what's true if they don't believe that it's good. Okay, so as Bob Dylan said, times are changing, so let's see what we can do. Cultural shifts we need to be aware of. Start with that. In our postmodern culture, in, in modern America, the belief is that truth emanates from within. Okay, so around us in our culture, truth emanates from within. So common morality is no longer based on, in, uh, on reason or uh, rights and wrongs that are established elsewhere. Common morality is the source, in, it's the source of morals in, in uh, our own intuitions. So my morals and my intuition are, are one and the same. So my gut feeling is where my belief comes from. So if I feel this is right, it's right. And if I feel this is wrong, it's probably wrong and we should steer clear. Intuitions are now the source of our common morality. And so we ask new questions in this modern culture. People don't ask if something is reasonable or right. They ask, is it harmful or not? Is it freeing or is it oppressive? Is it accepting or is it discriminatory? And these are different questions than, is it right or wrong? Is it harmful or not? Because if it's not hurting anybody, maybe we should just look the other way. Is it freeing or oppressive? Because if, if it's sort of telling somebody they shouldn't do something, we should err on the side of freedom, culture says. Is it discriminatory or is it accepting? Can you, don't discriminate anyone for anything. 98% of Christian arguments are based on uh, the statement starts something like, the Bible clearly says. And then if we're honest, 98% of the population tunes out the second we start that way. Remember, it doesn't matter if it's true if the listener doesn't perceive it to be good. It isn't that the Bible clearly says it is wrong. That's still right. It's just not as effective in our modern culture. Think about it this way. You are a passenger. Okay? You're a passenger in a car. You get to choose who is driving the car. So as you close your eyes and you're the passenger, someone is driving. It's your fantasy. You choose. Okay. Some of you, it's your spouse. Other of you, you don't really like your spouse who's driving. And so you can pick anybody you like. No one's judging. 
you're in the passenger seat of the car. The driver is there. You're coming up to a four-way uh, intersection, stoplights, okay? And you're coming up, and the light, objectively, is clearly red, all right? So we have a red light. You're coming up to a red light. You're the passenger. The driver is there. And you instinctively expect the brake pedal to be depressed and for everything to slow down. Instead, the driver, this terrible person you've chosen in your fantasy here, this person instead hits the accelerator and speeds up through the intersection, blowing through the red light. If they are your spouse, you immediately hit them and say, what is wrong with you? If they're not your spouse, you try to be a little bit more diplomatic, but you're still going, hey, is everything okay? Like, that light was clearly red. Here's the postmodern trouble. It's because your your postmodern driver here says, I don't actually know if that's true. You're going to know it. I mean, it's, look, let's be honest here, right? There's a green one and a yellow one and a red one, and the red one was lit. And they go, yeah, I actually don't think that light was red. I actually believe, and I want to tell you, that I identify that light as blue and orange. To which you say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It was red. To which they say, I'm fine with that being your truth, but I'm going to identify it as blue and orange. And as a result, I don't need to stop because there are no rules for stopping at blue and orange lights. And now we have a little bit of an absurd problem, don't we? But this is the culture we live in. I'm objectively saying that this is good or this is bad, this is right or this is wrong, and the culture around us is going, that's okay for you to identify that, but I'm going to create my own truth. This is troubling, but it's real. The truth is not out there, the truth is in here, is what we're told. The, the same is true of the view of sex and marriage has become radically different than what it used to be. This is not a get off my lawn back in my day, it was different, this is just the way their society is evol- evolving. Sex is now primarily a recreation. You you don't have to look far to see how it's talked about. It is a recreation. Marriage has become a flexible romantic contract based on what? Feelings. It's a flexible romantic contract based on feelings. It's no longer a covenant. Sex is no longer a physical covenant between two people that represents something between God and man. It's recreation. Marriage is no longer a covenant between two people till death do us part to represent something between God and man. It's a flexible romantic contract that each of us, should we feel the need, can walk away from should our feelings no longer apply. That's the world we live in. This is troubling. Because in a world where all of the rules of the creator have been eschewed, when they've all been taken out, then we have a whole different paradigm that we see the world through. And this is why sex is where it is. In a world without a creator, in a world without a creator, our bodies are accidental. There was a bang, something happened, we're all here, who knows why. And if our bodies are accidental, then what we do with them is incidental. It doesn't really matter. We're just here. As a result, that worldview says we cannot argue morality or reason. So what we have to do is recognize that we live in a culture and stop swimming upstream and go, okay, so what do we do? First thing is we're going to need to listen more. And then we have to stop trying to tell people what's right and wrong and start showing them what is good. And what is good, undeniably, in our lives is Jesus. And so we need to learn how to point to Jesus as the source of our flourishing, to point to Jesus as the source of our safety, to point to Jesus as the source of our security, and go, don't don't we all want flourishing and safety and security and peace and hope and forgiveness and mercy and justice? Isn't that what we're after? Those are good things. And if people won't accept it to be true unless it's good, then we have to stop fighting right and wrong and start fighting good or not. We point to Jesus as a source of flourishing. 
So we don't look at our neighbor and say, you're wrong or you're evil. We say, you should be flourishing. Maybe most important to understand is our anthropology has changed. The real you is the one you feel or discover. Culturally, the real you is the one you feel or discover. The source of our identity has shifted radically in recent generations. Identity for all of human history, anthropologically speaking, has been based on something outside of self. People identified based on a tribe or a culture or ethnicity or nationality or language or belief. People identified with something outside of themselves. I'm part of a larger whole. That's where I identify. Now, our identity is from somewhere else entirely. I create my own reality is the belief. Truth is what I feel it to be. I can identify as whatever I want to identify. This is troubling. Because if I can just identify however I want, then none of these external things are actually real. And this creates a really strange philosophical problem for modern people. You'll remember uh, the NAACP president in Washington State, Rachel Dolezal. She was a Caucasian woman who identified after she was called out for not being African-American. She, was, she said, well, I identify as black. And they said, but you're, but you're not. And she goes, yes, but I identify that way. And it was a really tense moment because she was advocating for something that was, was good for justice. And she was doing some good things, but, but she was very clearly not who she said she was. And so she, she runs into this steamroller of, of culture that says, hey, you can't just claim to be whatever you want. And at the same time, the postmodern world that's going and championing everybody being able to make their own reality says, I don't think we have a choice. It's objectively false that our Western European ancestors and all this, like, she's just, just like, like me. But if we say that, then we can't say all these other things. And so what they had to say was, yeah, I guess you can be that if you want. You can identify as whatever you want. This is troubling. Because the second we begin to identify whatever we want to identify as, then, then what is objectively true around us falls away. So if I told you that I wanted to identify as being Polynesian, you would look at me a little bit funny. I'm very clearly not from the Pacific Islands. But I could say, but I want to be identified that way, and I feel that within me, and I really think that's true. And you'd go, gosh, well, I guess I can't tell you what you're not, so okay. But what's the next line? So I can identify that way. Well, what if I say, oh, I want to be a kangaroo, actually? I'm a Polynesian kangaroo. You have special scholarships for me at the university. I'm very clearly a minority. I'm the minority's minority. I'm not even the species, but I'm very smart. I'd like to study. What would you do? And, and it, it, it's, it's absurdity, clearly, right? This is not a real argument. And yet, when you argue it to absurdity, you go, wait a minute. I guess there's a line somewhere that we can no longer identify as whatever we want to be. And so is it a special line? Well, you have to be human. Do I? In the age of artificial intelligence, we're going to be asking that question real soon. Well, okay, you, you have to be, can I racially be what I want to be? I can identify however I want. Can I gender identify however I want? Like, it's a really slippery slope. And what we find philosophically is there's not a really firm place to stand once you allow that identification is free. What do we do with that? Society says, look inward and find truth. So as a community of faith, what we have to do is go, okay, is that real? Jesus says, looking into the human heart doesn't lead us to the solution of our angst. It leads us to the source of our angst. Mark 7. Jesus is talking. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, 
lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Notice, notice that this is a list. Because we get hung up on one or two of these things. We find the sin that we like the most and we beat up on that one. But notice, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. I got some of those. Man, on my best day, I got a couple of those. Jesus says, hey, there's equality at the cross. And it isn't just in salvation. It's in sin. That we are equal in the fact that none of us have gotten this right. And none of us have figured it all out. And we all have a place we need to go, you know what? Maybe there's something in me that's not quite right. Jesus says everything that comes from inside of a man is what defiles him. It isn't the outside in. It's not that stuff. And so if we are thinking that we are thirsty and that we are going to drink from the well of truth within us, we are drinking a poisoned well. He says there is an absolute out there. Live your truth is not a path to flourishing. It is a common thing to say. People who say it mean well, live your truth. Hey, you live your truth, you live your truth. That doesn't work. Because we can't have intellectual honesty when we scale back in in a university community and go, can I be intellectually honest and say, you live your truth? Because if I say that the light is orange and blue and you know objectively that it's red and you can't tell me to live my truth because you're asking really why don't you just live your falsehood of what you're telling me? And what Jesus is telling you is if we're allowing other people to live out their falsehood, then we're denying them the fullness of flourishing. No one actually believes live your truth outside of themselves. Because we would not allow other people to live their truth if it isn't our truth. The white nationalist KKK wing that's rising up in, in America, that fringe of the world do we want them to live their truth? Or do we want to say that racism is clearly wrong? I'm not going to tell them to live their truth. I'm going to tell them to get out of here. I don't want to see you around. This is not okay. So live your truth is what we want to say. But man, your, your truth is good for you and mine can be good for me. And what we know to be true is once we get to the actual nuts and bolts of that, there's a line for everybody. Everybody has a place where you go, actually, yeah, that works until here. Like every single one of us, we have absolutes that this is okay and this is not. Hey, my truth is that violence is okay. Not okay. Why? Well, I don't know. How do we invite people to live real truth? How do you invite people to live real truth? If we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, how do we invite people to live that truth instead of a made-up truth welling up from the inside? We start by listening. No one ever found compassion for another person in talking. That's a hard thing to realize for someone who preaches for a living. You never find compassion for someone else in talking. You find compassion in hearing their heart and listening to their struggle and walking in their shoes and hearing their plight. Tell me your story. That's where I find compassion. That's where I find commonality. That's when I recognize that we are all part of the same brokenness. That every single one of us, that list that Jesus gave us, is intended to show us that we are all on the same path of brokenness. And every single one of us is on the path of brokenness looking for the fix and the solution. And so postmodern culture says the fix and the solution is to live your truth. You make it up for yourself, now you're better. And what we know to be true about society is that doesn't actually make anything better. That each and every one of us in here who would call ourselves followers of Jesus have gone, I am broken, I have been broken, and the only thing that heals me is Christ. And so anything less than that, any moving of the goalposts or switching of the line so I can make it work for you, it's not real. 
And it's not intended for your flourishing. This allows us to walk into a room and go, there is no them. We are not going to be a church that has a them and an us mentality. There is no them. There's only us. Us, the broken. Us, the hurting. Us, the needing to be healed. Us, the ones that Jesus came for. Us, the ones that he died and was resurrected for. There's us. And our job is to continually invite people into us. And the second we paint them as them, we say that there's something we're not. And the reality is we are all broken in need of a savior. In a society yearning for equality, the irony is that true equality is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the only place where every man, woman, and child is found to be the same in front of God. Broken by sin, needing resurrection and redemption. Only in Jesus is there true equality. Not only in sin, but in salvation. For God so loved the world. Who does that include? Full equality. The result of this is that Jesus calls everyone to the same thing, to repent and believe. Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is where we find the counterintuitive path to what we're aiming for. When we hold out Jesus as the only hope, when we are listening and we're doing life with each other and we're compassionate and we're offering friendship to people of every stripe and inclination, eventually it gets down to, why do you believe what you believe? And you go, because Jesus. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. And so then we start with this and we go, look, the, the cost of discipleship is the same for everyone. Salvation is free. Discipleship has a cost. Salvation is free. To follow Christ means there's a cost. Deny yourself. What does that mean? Deny your proclivities. Deny your inclinations. Deny your desires. Whether that's for sex or for money or for power or for status or whatever it is, we have to deny that because that's self. If we were to follow Jesus, we have to say a profound no to some of our deepest longings and intuitions. It is radical and it is counterintuitive. Jesus says, as we deny ourselves to follow him, we actually find our true identity. That he who intends to keep his life will lose it, and he who gives up his life will actually find it. Which brings us back to Sam Albury's challenge. People don't care what's true if they don't believe that it's good. People don't care what's true if they don't believe that it's good. And so we have this thing. We're in this conversation. We're, we're talking with a friend, our longtime neighbor, and and we get to this impasse, and they go, that's all good for you, but it doesn't sound good for me. That can even be true for you, but it doesn't sound good for me. I can't buy into that. This Jesus thing, this discipleship thing. And so our job as followers of Christ is to showcase the goodness of God and the goodness of his design. And so when you appeal to a postmodern world, you appeal to the rationality of ethics. We ask the question, what is the good thing that the prohibition protects. What is the good thing that the prohibition protects? The, the thing we say is off the table. That's not okay. We shouldn't do that. What's the good thing that that protects? Come back to our street light example. This isn't a hard one. If we say the light is red objectively and everybody should stop at red, what's the good thing that following that prohibition to go on red, what's the good thing that that protects? Well, I think we'd have a whole lot more broadside accidents if everybody just identified the lights however they wanted. 
And so the rule is in place, the statute is in place so that it would protect everyone, that we would all be freer and safer and we would all thrive and flourish because none of us have to worry about going through an intersection and getting T-boned. That's a good thing. Anybody ever drive one of these roads around here at night uh, in the dark and the only thing you got is that yellow line running through the center of the asphalt? You can't move the center of the line and expect to find safety. That line is there as a guideline. It's a principled application that says, if you will simply do what I've asked you to do and stay on the right side of the line, then you will find flourishing. And if you say, yeah, but I want to identify that line as white and I want to go on either side of it, you can do that. Like we said last week, you can and you should are two different things. You can do that. But the line is in place for your flourishing and your safety and your protection and your security. And the second we decide that I just don't like the line very much, what we're choosing to do is walk outside of what was created for us in our flourishing. This should lead us to a place when we find that we disagree with culture or that our friends and neighbors, coworkers, whoever disagree with us, the fight isn't with us. For too long, we've allowed this to be an issue between people over there and Christians. Well, Christians are anti this and Christians are anti that and Christians don't like this and Christians don't like that. And we've gone, oh, okay. We like a good fight. And that's rubbish. The fight isn't between those people and Christians. There is no them, there's only us. If we disagree with what Jesus says, the fight is between whoever disagrees and Jesus. And we have to stop allowing ourselves to be drawn into an us versus them tussle and to continue to draw the conversation back to Christ. If we are followers of Christ, we go, hey, it's not between you and me, I love you. But this Jesus thing is going to be kind of hard for me to get through. We can say things like, I believe what I believe about this issue, whatever that issue is, because I believe what I believe about Jesus. I believe what I believe about this because I believe what I believe about Jesus. What I believe about God determines what I believe about everything else. So like we said last week, Jesus claimed to be the son of God, lived a sinless life, predicted his death and resurrection, and pulled it off in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses who then testified to it in written form. As a result, Jesus gets to tell me what to do. Because no one did it before him and no one has done it since. And he claimed to be God and he pulled it off. So Jesus defines good on a lot of things. Every April comes around and I really don't want to pay my taxes. But Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He looked at the coin, he saw Caesar's face. I look at the dollar bill and I see George Washington and I go, good. I really have to give that back? I don't want to pay my taxes. I would much rather keep the money. But Jesus says, hey, listen, this is for your flourishing. You know what I'd rather do than forgive somebody who's wronged me? I'd rather uh, exact revenge or hold resentment, or at very least, I'd rather have a grudge. Because that at least, you know, at least I feel like I'm doing something. I'm not laying down, letting them walk all over me. Jesus, is that okay? Jesus goes, 70 times 7, forgive them. Yeah, but what if forgive them? What if forgive them? What if forgive them? Oh. I believe what I believe about forgiveness because I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I believe what I believe about taxes, about sex, about any of these things. Because Jesus, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, pulled it off. And we are here because of him. So that creates in me a thing when I'm having a discussion with someone else. I have to weigh out what they're telling me, what culture is telling me, what my friend is telling me. I have to weigh that out with the source of truth. If the source of truth is some guy or girl, it's Todd, then I have to go, 
okay, deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus, because God lived a sinless life, died for me and raised from the dead. Or, deny myself, take up my cross and follow God. They just didn't have the same ring. And I like Todd. I know two Todds, and they're both good people, but I'm not going to deny myself and take up my cross for Todd. I do what I do because Jesus is who he says he is. Our faith is based on the resurrection and nothing less. Nietzsche says, those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. Here's the thing. Jesus is our music, church. And we have to stop expecting the world outside of here. We have to stop expecting the culture that is against Christ. We have to stop expecting them to dance along to the tune they can't hear. And get frustrated with the culture when the culture goes uh, the different direction that we think it should go. It's just not our fight. They, they can't dance because they don't hear the music. Jesus is our music. We have to stop trying to get people to dance and start trying to introduce them to the song. And that's a big thing. We focus on behavior, 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 behavior. And I want you to do what Jesus would say to do, but I've not yet actually introduced you to Jesus. I want you to dance to this song you can't hear. And after you dance that way for a while, maybe you'll be good enough and you'll hear the music. It doesn't work that way. You introduce them to the music, and then they dance the song with you. But we got it backwards. We're so focused on behavior that we never stop to make relationships. We're so focused on making sure people know what's true that we never engage with them and let them know that what we're in it for is their good. Jesus teaches equality of all people. He undoes smug religious people. He sits with prostitutes and tax collectors rather than bash them from afar. And he is the definer of good and the bringer of good. He teaches mercy and compassion and grace, and it is good. He teaches love God and love your neighbor as self. It is good. How do you want your struggles dealt with? How do you want your sin life dealt with? Jesus would say we should be offering grace and and patience and compassion and prayer, and those things are good, that we should offer hope and mercy and support because those are good. Jesus would show us that no one really wants tolerance anyway, that that's a lie. We tolerate things we hate. Brussels sprouts, country music. Nobody wants tolerance. Human heart is designed for love. It is designed to be a wash in the good things that God came to bring us through Jesus. Tolerance. That's a bar way too low for Christians to aim at. We're to offer proactive sacrifice and deep friendship. We're to walk with people whether they have a total transplant of life or whether it's a one slow step at a time and they hear one instrument at a time as that song comes in. We're to walk with them. Jesus said, go and do likewise to what? To give up your life. To lay yourself down. To offer your days for others. Many Christians are shifting too because this is a hard issue. Christians are shifting going, look, I don't want to be on the wrong side of this. And I got friends and loved ones, I do too. That don't think the way I think about this stuff, or I don't even know if I want to believe it because it just seems hard and hurtful. Maybe what Jesus was teaching was relevant then, and maybe it's just not relevant now. Maybe times have changed. My only response to that in the own darkness of my own heart and the own doubts and the moments I have is I have to remind myself that Jesus never came to speak to a context. 
Jesus didn't come to speak to a context or a time. Jesus came to speak to the state of the human heart universally. And so when Jesus says to avoid this long list of things, it isn't that greed is good now or that lewdness is fine now or that envy, and, and that's, that didn't become better because Jesus was just talking to them in context. Jesus is speaking to the condition of the human heart. And he's offering us something greater that in replacement of those things that he offers us new life, a new self, and the capacity we have for all of those things, Jesus says, if you will simply let them go, deny yourself and follow me, you will now experience the capacity for fullness and flourishing you've never known before. Jesus offers a path to true freedom. He calls it the way and the truth and the life, and he calls it himself. So the question as we close is, what do we do with all this? We said this was practical. What does that look like? Number one, we chase humility. We chase humility with everything we have. We look at the world around us, Tim Keller says, not as a, a waiting room as you're going to a job interview where you're sizing up the other candidates, but a waiting room before you go into the doctor's office where you know that you look around the room and everyone else is sitting too. That's the world we live in and we are there. I look around and I see broken, 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 but for the grace of God, he's healed me. We see others with humility. We find compassion there. Second thing is we learn as a, as a culture, as a community, especially as the American church, to honor singleness better. We live in a culture that idolizes married people with kids. And I would be the first to admit that we do not do well to honor singleness in our community or in our church. If it was good enough for Jesus, it should probably be good enough for us. Whether by choice or by circumstance, we should love single people just as much as we love everyone else. We should champion them just as much as we champion anyone else. And if someone makes it to their 40s, 50s, 80s, and they haven't been married and had 10 kids and have grandkids, they should be championed for their faithfulness, not their family status. We should be better. One of the ways we do that is community groups. When we have strong community groups, we have family units built in around the community that provides all that we need. Everyone with a chance to be known. Heck, those of us with families know that they're jacked up anyway. And so we run to community groups to find people who believe what we believe and who can walk with us through this stuff too. Third thing, we need to begin uh, to be chiefly concerned with faithfulness in our churches instead of image and perception. In 2018, we still fear boys who love the arts and girls who prefer a ball over a Barbie. We need to create a culture in Christ that champions faithfulness and rootedness in Jesus. I started out 10 years ago as a college pastor. And I know too many young people who didn't fit the Christian stereotype of masculinity or femininity and as a result gave up on their faith entirely because they couldn't meet this fake, idolized version of manliness or, or womanliness. And they said, forget it. I can't be what you want me to be. I'm out. We have to start championing faithfulness in people. Too many young Christians walk away because they don't fit the model that we're presenting. King David was a man after God's own heart, a warrior, a king, and a poet, and a dancer. If I danced up here, I wouldn't be here long, because that's not what men do, except the man God created after his own heart. Champion faithfulness, not image. Fourth and finally, uh, offer support is what we're going to do. We have a team of elders here who would love to walk through life with you. We have multiple people, even after the first service, uh, who have said, young women and, and men who've said, I'd love to be a, a contact if somebody wants to talk through this or walk through this. If you have 
if it's challenging or if you have friends and don't know what to do with it, we want to be a place of support. So whether you are struggling with something that's been said today or this whole series, or you're struggling with how do we love somebody well, how do I deal with a loved one who's going through this and doesn't see this the way I do, we want to be there to walk through it with you. So you can email elders at bgcovenant.org. You can email me directly if you want some confidentiality there. I'm happy to take that email. I'm happy to walk through that with you. I'm happy to talk through that with you, to place you with people who are trusted and safe, who can help us find the answers to all this stuff together. We have to do this as a family. This is not the last time we're going to talk about this stuff because there's going to be new stuff we haven't even thought of that the world's going to say is right, and we're going to go, wait, what? So we're going to do it together. So send those emails, and we will start that journey together. Let's pray.